Welcome to Wood Talk, crafting artisanal sawdust since 2007. Now here are your hosts, Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, welcome to Wood Talk. It is show number 493 for December 9th, 2020. Huh. On today's show, we're talking about precision and accuracy. I'm thrilled by this topic. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be awesome. I hear you kids, Matt. Say hi oh, for Oh, yeah, me. they're... They're there. Hi, kids. Oh, I don't think I'm going to like yell right now. This <laughs> mic in front of my face. <laughs> okay, you can't be dad right now. You're uh, you're doing a show. Uh, before we get to that, I want to let you. Dad know- is working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Before we get to uh, Matt yelling at his kids, we want to let you know that Wood Talk is brought to you by Rockler. Rockler has been helping customers create with confidence for over 65 years. Their holiday sale is going on right now, which includes all the best gifts for woodworkers in your life. Shop early for the best selection in stores or at rockler.com. And that sale ends on Christmas Eve, 1224, so don't miss it. And if you want to help support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash woodtalk and signing up to become a patron of the show. Uh, who are we talking about this week? This week, we're thanking Brad Logstrom. Brad. Brad Logston. Logston. There we go. Brad Logston and Kevin Grinder. Wow. Grinder. It's, it's amazing. Even the simple names he can't get right. <laughs> There's no N in that? Ah. No N. Or Gritter. Grinder or Gritter? Gritter? I don't know. Maybe two, Kevin two Ds if, there was, if it was Gritter. I don't know. Let's just, let's just dissect names on this show. That's what people love. Yeah. Do they though? Sure. No, no, they don't. <laughs> no, no, not really. So before we get into the main topic, I wanted to ask you guys um, if you fall victim to this. We, we alluded to kind of overbuilding furniture in the last show when Matt was talking about moving his furniture and going, man, who made this as uh, who made this this heavy? Why is this so heavy? So I, I still have this tendency and I did the uh, outfit assembly table and the casework. It's all three quarter inch and the drawers are all three quarter inch because... They're big, they're big drawers. They're like 28 inches deep. Uh, So I was like, well, I guess I want to use something thick. And I put it all together and I'm like getting ready to move it because this thing needs to be mobile. It's a, it's actually an assembly table that will go mobile and move away from the table saw if I need to. And I'm going like, why do I do this to myself? I know I should have probably used half inch for certain parts of this project, but here I go using three quarters of an inch. Uh, I mean, is that something you guys ever do still like overbuild? even though you know better that you should use thinner stock. Here's the thing about like the moving experience. Nothing I made broke during the move, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like the crap I had bought from like wherever, like press boards screw together stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely did not survive the move. <laughs> good, right. good so point. There's, there's that too. Yeah. So well, and, and one wonders, are we actually overbuilding? Or are we overbuilding in relation to the crap that Matt is talking about? Yeah, I suppose like, that's a good point. You know, the status quo of furniture is crap. So most of these things like they're like going to be fine. Like your put together bookshelf that came on a flat pack from Target. It's going to be fine under dynamic loading or under static loading. But as soon as you get some dynamic thing going on when you're moving it, that's when it goes to crap. Yeah. True. Solid Very point, true. my friend. Solid point. Well, OK, then I will now, go back I, into my shop and feel good about that three quarter inch plywood. That I, that I can't move around move. a lot. So that, that's, <laughs> that's so heavy to the point that I'm like, did I buy the right casters? Is this <laughs> going to be okay? I don't know. We'll find out. That's awesome. I don't, I don't think I overbuild with thickness because I tend to go the other direction. I, I really like, I like making thin drawers and I kind of like the delicate look of it. But yeah. from a joinery perspective, oh, heck yeah. 
I'm overbuilding. Like, I mean, I built a small chest that did not need sliding dovetails for the dust frames, nor did it even need dust frames. It just needed like runners, <laughs> yeah. like dadoed into the side and it would have been just fine. Sure. Um, because the case is so narrow, it wasn't really going to bow out that much anyway, but there is like full mortise and tenon dust frames, um, full through sliding dovetailed into the side of the case. <laughs> like this thing will handle dynamic load from like a gorilla. <laughs> so yeah, it's, but you know, the stock itself, like the dust frames are only five eighths of an inch thick. So there's like a step down. It's, it's very green and green. There's this step down in thickness from piece to piece and different reveals and things. So yeah, I like playing with that, but you know, I, maybe as I, I overcompensate, if I'm using thinner stock. I'm going to like join the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. That should be, that's a good question. A good uh, topic for another show. Dust frames. Yes or no. <laughs> Yay or nay. Yeah, your name dust frames. It depends. I don't know. I kind of like them from the overbuilding <laughs> aspect, like that kind of the concept of different that sh- show, Mark. Different show. Okay, let's not do yeah, that. Let's, stop, Mark. Let's talk about our uh, main topic stop talking, today. Stop talking. <laughs> or we could just call an audible and change this show. Yeah. Let's talk about dust frames. I, I kind of like it. I think it's a better topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry to disappoint you guys. We're going to talk about something not as fun: uh, precision and accuracy. So this. This came up, I thought it would be a good topic because someone in the guild group had mentioned they were looking to buy some little setup blocks. So, you know, there's little brass blocks that you can use to set up router bits and it just usually comes in a nice little case. You got a quarter inch, three eighths, half inch, whatever. So they were asking about which ones do you like? These are only rated to this accurate, you know, this many decimal points uh, versus this <laughs> brand. Uh, which one is the best one to buy? And the conversation that ensued was was really interesting to see different people's perspective. And of course, everybody has their own way of doing things. So anything that I say or we say here is just kind of our perspective on this. You may feel differently about it. But I was I basically said, well, look, I think for most woodworkers, any set of setup blocks is going to work. And whether it is, you know, down to the, you know, fourth decimal point uh, accurate to a half inch or to a quarter inch is almost irrelevant. What's more important is that once you set up for that dimension, that every piece you cut that needs that same thing is the same. It's not so important that you nailed a half inch. It's just that if you're off from a half inch, that they're all off from a half inch. So these setup blocks can be good, but how accurate they are in in terms of like hitting the exact dimension that they're labeled is not quite as important. So buy it from any company. It doesn't really matter. So again, the conversation went into like, how important is it that these things be perfectly accurate or is it more important that they are uh, helping you establish some level of precision in your shop where you could uh, achieve the same result every time, right? So I think when we'll kind of go back and forth and talk about how important these things are to us, um, we should probably define if we're getting very literal about this, uh, the differences Mm -hmm. between accuracy and precision, because they're often used interchangeably, especially in marketing speak. Um, the, at least the way I see it, <clears throat> excuse me, and you guys, please correct me if I'm wrong or if you have a different view. Uh, it's always the, uh, the picture of the bullseye, like a dartboard um, that, that I think depicts this the most clearly. When we're talking about accuracy, we're talking about the ability for all of your darts to, to, to go into that center point. If they hit the bullseye, it's accurate. Uh, but if it's in order for it to be precise, all of your hits have to be the same. They don't even have to be at the bullseye. But as long as all of your darts went to the same spot, that is now precise. That's precision. And so you can have a combination of things that are accurate and precise or accurate, but not precise. 
right? So, so it, it does get confusing. So does that, um, does that sort of depiction work for the definition you yeah. guys have in your heads? I think though, in terms of furniture and what we do, I like to think of precision as consistency. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about accuracy. It's not whether I mark this mortise two and three eighths inches from the bottom of the leg or, you know, two and 121, 21, 28. Yeah. It's that I mark every mortise, the consistent distance from the bottom of the leg. And that to me is precision. Right. I've, I've applied precision by, you know, using a story stick or, or whatever. Accuracy <laughs> in my shop has no place. Yeah. Well, it's just There's no room a, for accuracy in here. It's the simple like marking or cutting gauge, right? It doesn't matter exactly what you set that at, but as long as all of your shoulders have the same scribe, you, you're going to have a perfect project. It's going to be fine. So right. are there times though, for you guys where accuracy is critical? So you, you need something to be absolutely perfect. Um, if I start integrating hardware, you know, um, like, yeah, a hinge, that's a good point. Right. Or, um, I talked about this a long time ago when I built my flywheel lathe, that was a major challenge for me because I introduced a lot of modern hardware with thrust bearings and things. Yeah. And I had, I had machinist, um, tolerance with all of the, the moving parts thrown into a wood frame, which is a totally different tolerance. Yeah. So I had to have a high level of accuracy in the positioning of all of the holes that I bored. And there was a high level of precision, you know, from headstock to tailstock, there had to be a fair amount of precision, but it required accuracy at first. Sure. So that's the other way I look at it is kind of accuracy comes first and then precision is the repeating of that accuracy yeah. in some respect. Yeah, that makes sense. So, but yeah, anytime, I mean, I suppose you could make a case for moving parts as well. Mm-hmm. Like drawers require a certain amount of accuracy. Yeah. But there yeah, again, if your clearances for your hardware aren't perfect, you'll get a tight drawer. Or if it's not, you know, perfectly sized right. for the opening, you could have problems with the drawers operation. Or any, any opportunity where like you can't employ that consistency. We're talking about you, you brought up a marking gauge earlier. Yeah. You know, I want to put a quarter inch tenon on a three quarter inch thick rail on the edge. Ideally I want to center it right quarter inch shoulder on either side and a quarter inch um, tenon or, or mortise. But then you have to put that mortise exactly in the center of that rail. And you know, if you don't have the accuracy to put that mark right in the center, then as long as you mark from the same reference face on all your parts, yeah. it doesn't matter, right? And you mark your tenons and your mortises from the same face, maybe the outward face, then if that tenon and mortise is shunted, you know, towards the far rail a little bit or closer to the far rail, it doesn't matter because it's precisely the same from one leg to another. But if you run into a situation where you can't really do that, like there's not a straight edge to run a gauge against, you know, you're dealing with some sort of freeform piece or there's an angled piece or something like that. Then you have to really rely on accuracy. Yeah. And what you have to do is like, um, I, I did this recently with the the bench that I built for my, my, um, uh, my new semester at the hand tool school that just dropped recently. Tell us all about <laughs> it. And what is the price? I'm just curious. Um, it, it has an angled leg to it or not, and or don't, don't, don't take that's this as much selling I as I can do. <laughs> I already, I already feel awkward and weird. That's as much selling as I can do, but yeah. yes, it just dropped. It's a hundred dollars, but it's on sale right now for black Friday. Of course, by the time you listen to this, the black Friday sale will be over. Long so gone. I just teased you and now you're mad at me. Oh, so, yeah. easy come easy go. Yeah, that's okay. There'll be a holiday sale running <laughs> after that. It just won't be as good as right now. Sorry. Okay. 
anyway, the point is, um, I had this leg and it has, has a, a taper to it. It has angled sides. So the bottom is, is wider than the top. And in order to lay out the central mortise, the, there was no straight edge. There was no parallel edge that I could run with. So I actually had to, uh, create a center line and then lay out the mortise off the center line. And that required accuracy that required me pulling out a ruler and measuring out, you know, three eighths of an inch, one direction, three eighths of an inch, another direction to get a three quarter inch wide mortise. From there, however, I cut that mortise and then I put it on top of the second leg and I just reached through with a knife and traced the location of the mortise through the first mortise. So I suppose one could say that was precision, Mm -hmm. but it required a heck of a lot of accuracy in order to get it laid out the way I wanted it the first time. Sure. And, and that was not that, that, that didn't, that, there was no other way I could think of to do that with a gauge or running off a reference face or something like that. Yeah. That makes sense. I other think, than be smart and not cut the angle, lay out the mortise, then cut the angle. But I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that can help. I think, um, built-ins is a place where accuracy really comes into play for me because now it's actually, it's not a standalone piece where if it's a eighth inch bigger than what you plan for, who cares? Uh, this thing has to fit or at least has to not be so big that it can't fit into an alcove of some sort. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, but don't you purposely is, undersize it? Yeah. Yeah, you can, <laughs> and, but, and but what, it. my point is if you go, if it's too big, then you oh. have a problem. So what I'm saying is oh, okay. the, there may it. be in this case, it's like, yes, it cannot be any bigger than this, but things smaller than this, then the accuracy can kind of be a little bit off, but you're, you're using accuracy or the, you know, where it doesn't need to be accurate uh, to your advantage in a built-in, but you still need to get it to be the right size. You, it, otherwise it's going to just look stupid if it's, if it's totally wrong. Um, you know, th- <laughs> that is a really wide base molding on there. Yeah. Okay. Can you think <laughs> of anything Matt, before we venture I off into like, other parts of this? I think the biggest like thing with this is like the, the real place where accuracy really matters is if you're, I guess if you're producing things and someone else is producing things as well to kind of get to your the same standard number. Oh, sure. Yeah. If, if you're the one, if you have that part in front of you and you're trying to fit it into this hole right here, you can do that. But if that hole right here is in someone else's shop, they have to measure that hole accurately and you have to produce whatever it is that has to go in that hole accurately. So you start looking at the accuracy versus precision thing in like the more manufacturing space, then I think accuracy really matters. And that's why like I think with most machinist type things, they're used to working with those tolerances because their part has to go somewhere else to fit in someone else's thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think part of this conversation is our luxury of being like in the, the person does it all. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a single person's operation. So if something's off, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. Well, think about the number of times people have said, wouldn't it be cool if you guys did a group build? Like if Matt did one part, and oh Shannon did one yeah. part and Mark did one part. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds awful. It sounds like, like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> because we all have different like I think understandings of accuracy and, and precision. We all cut on different and, sides and frankly, of the line. And, and what's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking one of the places where uh, sort of adhering to accuracy and being like thinking that accuracy is super important can actually bite you in the butt is for an example, let's say you want to use one of those blocks to help you establish when a shoulder for a tenon is the right depth. So let's say you got a three quarter inch piece you're using a quarter inch setup lock to determine when your tenon is the right thickness. Well, that is super dependent on your stock being exactly three quarters of an inch in the first place. Right. So, right. so if you, if, <laughs> right. if you're going to apply that kind of accuracy logic, you really got to go across the board 
otherwise things just aren't going to work. So that's why we do these things in a relative perspective. We go, okay, well, I know I want a quarter inch shoulder, but if my workpiece is three quarters of an inch and my mortise is established by a router bit that's dead on one quarter inch, well, I can't have quarter inch shoulders unless I know that my workpiece is exactly a three quarters of an inch. And, and most times it's not right. We get close, but we're not perfect. So we kind of have to abandon right. this adherence to accuracy for the sake of, of getting things to fit correctly. Yeah. We got to think about like, what's your reference. Three quarter dado in plywood. Yeah. Sorry, Matt. I'm, le- I'm letting one of you have some space know. here. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I was, all I was saying was, what? that where you, am I? If you're going to be, if you're going to adhere to this accuracy thing, you got to really start thinking about references reference surfaces and what your reference pieces are. Yeah. So in the case of your example with the tenon thing, you shouldn't be comparing the shoulder. You should be comparing the actual tenon you're cutting. Right. And the shoulder becomes irrelevant at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think we all like to use a little bit of relative dimensioning in our work, story sticks and who cares what the number is. Does it fit? So it's kind of like to love to. <laughs> That's all I do. There's no other way. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why do you think I have so many marking knives come on but what's interesting because I look pretty yeah what's interesting <laughs> yes. about that though is it's kind of like when you think of really accurate woodworkers I think of William Ng I think of Daryl Peart I think of woodworkers who carry calipers in their shop apron right that's the right. that's the accurate woodworker and feeler gauges yeah but on the flip side of that you could have someone who is just as accurate and and just as precise except for they're just marking stuff on a stick you know what I mean? See, now that just sounds silly. It does. Just it does. Marking stuff on a stick. But it's like if you don't want to dig into the numbers, but you, you still want to be accurate, um, welcome to the world of relative dimensioning. Mm, dimension. Mm, it's good stuff. <laughs> Relatively. Yeah. So anyway, if you haven't heard of relative dimensioning, um, I'll let Matt explain that. Go ahead. I'm, I'm tired of talking. Um, <laughs> 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 it's a good good setup there, right? Oh man, I love it. So relative dimensioning is basically taking your measurements, which aren't actual measurements, from the real world and uh, doing things that way. So if you're trying to make a, uh, a drawer to go into an opening, you're not going to measure the opening. You're going to put it your workpiece and put it right up the opening, make a little mark, and that's whatever it is. If it's 16 inches, cool. If it's 16 and a 16th, that's cool too. If it's some metric number, that's cool too doesn't matter because it's whatever the distance is right there on that piece of work right there in, real, in the real world mm-hmm. that's good I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that the actual number that's doesn't good. matter it could be inches metric it could be some made up units yep. doesn't matter doesn't matter anymore. it's a, a question of um does it fit yes or no does it fit right well it's it's an interesting parallel from like i spend too much time like watching machinist videos so in the machining world, they have these things called go or no go gauges, which give you like, is this like, is this thing in the real world a little bit too big or too small from the actual number I'm trying to go for? Mm-hmm. Which we really have that in the So explain this more. Go or no go gauges. What what yeah. what is this? So if you're trying to make something that's like an inch, yeah, right. But your tolerance needs to be plus or minus a thousand mm-hmm. or two thousand or something. There are gauges where you can have a gauge that is exactly an inch or it's exactly an inch in two thou or under okay. plus or minus or something. Sure. So you can compare those gauges against what you're doing. So if you have even for like, uh, for like pins, for like holes, you can see, is this piece too big to go in this hole now because I have a gauge ah, that tells me that. Interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's all kinds of weird little things you can buy in the, on that side of things. Yeah, woodworking isn't like that. What we do well, is we have plywood have that's undersized for... and that we have bits. <laughs> right. We have undersized bits that actually aren't even close to the right size of that undersized plywood, <laughs> right? That's what we do. Right. Which is where the calipers and the feeler gauges come back. Yeah. <laughs> you get that data to fit by sticking a feeler gauge in as a shim and then cutting the feeler gauge off and the data fits now. It's yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a go or no gauge for Windsor chair making. It's a little piece of, uh, um, it's like quarter inch thick oak that has a little like cutout in it. And I, I hold the spindle up to that and I go, okay, it's bigger than that little cutout. I need to shave more off. <laughs> That's, that's as that's as precise as my go or no go gauge goes. <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff. All right. Well, uh, that that's that's really all we had to say about that. If if you have comments well, on this, I would love I to hear comment, people's perspectives. Actually. I do have a comment. Um, before we get too far away from this, I do think that relative dimensioning can also get you in trouble. Ooh, um, let what? Me, let me tell us clarify more. that. Because we tend to, we'll use Matt's example. You know, if it's a drawer, you don't measure the drawer opening. You hold a piece of stock up and you make a mark of that. Yeah. Well, is the case glued up, you know, or is the case in clamps? Um, because if it's not, that dimension has gone change. Um, yeah. You know, I have, I have sized drawer openings off of a non-glued up case before and suddenly realized now the, the space what is a, smaller. What a noob. <laughs> yeah, well, I only did that once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learned from that. You never do that. Come on. <laughs> but but then there's the other aspect of you kind of have to keep checking in because you don't know what that number is. I don't know that that drawer compartment is six inches high. So you have to continually keep kind of checking it throughout the build because magically things change, you know, um, yeah. and and relative dimensioning because it's kind of this moving target in some respects. It, it, it can change on you and you have to just be vigilant, I guess, is the well, word I'm looking for. It could change um, you, too, if you had measured it. I think you're taking like a bigger uh, workflow kind true. of thing. Yeah, that's true. Well, and All I, right, well, never mind. But, no, but I do think there is an argument against relative dimensioning that's perfectly valid. And that is, uh, yeah, I could make that mark. And then what do I do? I go to the table saw. I cut to the mark. I test the fit. I cut again. I test the fit. I cut again. I test the fit. Whereas the person who is going to pull out their, you know, start gauge and dial calipers will get a perfect measurement. They know they want their workpiece five thousandths undersized, and then they have the ability to set their tool up for that. They don't have to go back and forth. They just nail it every time. If I think that really depends on their tools being able yeah, to be if, set if up they that can way. Set that up that quickly. Like yeah. I think most what's God. Back to like I watched too much machining stuff. Tell us about this Most, machining stuff, Matt. The machining stuff, like literally the entire thing is setting up the thing. Like <laughs> right. the cutting is like five percent of the work, and you're spending the rest of the time setting it up. Yeah, setting it up, setting it up. It's all set up. That's what I learned about machining. Is like it's ninety five percent set up and like five percent actually cutting things. Yeah, actually machining. Yeah. Well, I, I and I don't mind sneaking up on the fit. I mean, it's just a few extra cuts. But it kind of makes me feel like I, but that sneaking up means I won't accidentally overcut. I'm just going to inch up on which, it until I finally get the fit that I want. Which can be more dangerous when you get into the world of like irreplaceable parts. Yeah. Like when you start thinking about wood is not like a commodity and think about it like as a one of a kind thing. Yeah. Like this drawer front has to be here because this one matches the other four. 
Right. Mm -hmm. If I cut one too short, well, then my whole green continuity, green match thing is out the window. I got to start over again. Mm -hmm. That's why you have test pieces. Well, there you, you go. Bring those, through, cut, bring those through the process and, uh, and... Hopefully you don't cut your real piece short somehow. Yeah. Like you have like some crap between your stop block and your work piece that makes it too short somehow. Right. Well, that's an amateur bit. hour, so... I mean, <laughs> I thought Shannon brought us into amateur hour, so I thought we would continue. <laughs> that's with true. That. Okay. We're just keeping that theme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good stuff. Well, I, I, had a, I had a bank of drawers on a chest recently that had a... A veneer over the front of it and the entire veneer was set up to flow vertically from the top drawer down to the bottom drawer and i spent so much time focusing on getting that right that i forgot longitudinally once those drawers like from side to side once the drawers go in the case um would they shift like a millimeter to the left <laughs> or the millimeter to the right yeah so all the time to get the grain lined up vertically it was great when I was just dealing with drawer fronts all by themselves. But I, you know, cause it, you shoot one end of the board to get it flat and you lining things up with that. And then you're, you're fitting the drawer front. So you shoot some on one side and maybe you shoot some on the other side. And I, I forgot that no, everything's lined up. I cannot touch the left side of that drawer now, or it's going to throw off the alignment and just in fitting it, because then I was focusing on fitting one drawer front at a time. Oh, that was bad. That was really bad. So it's like you fit the first drawer front and it's fine. And then you go to fit the other one. And before I realized it, I'm like taking a little bit off the left side and a little bit off the right side. Oh, now it fits. And you pop it in. And you're like, son of a, it just doesn't line up. And you've got these like these like translation errors from one drawer to the other. It was it was bad. So, yeah, relative dimensioning there was uh, it bit me because I didn't think in terms of, yes, it fits that particular opening. But in the, the grander project, like. Mark, uh, Matt was saying earlier, thinking of the whole project, it does have to line up with the drawer above it. That was a real problem. Yeah, yeah that's it's like a work order situation, right? Like, you know, you know, these are going to need to be resized or slightly shaped to fit the opening. So leave them alone until all the other variables are solidified. And then you go back and, and work out that one thing. But yeah, that's a, a lesson to learn the hard way. Okay, well, I had uh, this is what I had written here for the mid-roll. Something stupid about being precise or whatever. Rockler! <laughs> Rockler! Because right, I couldn't come up with anything. <laughs> Good ad-lib. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we do here. Well, you know, all it takes is a tiny error to end up with unsightly gaps in your corners when building boxes and frames. Rockler's precision miter gauge solves that problem with accurately machined positive stops at the most commonly used locations, plus a miter bar with adjustable nylon set screws so that it fits your, your slot to a T. It fits your T slot oh. to a T. Oh, man. I love it. Uh, while retaining all the silky smooth sliding action, uh, accuracy, stability, and ease of use in an affordable package. So we're going to put the link to that one if you want to check it out. It's Rockler's Precision Miter Gauge. Uh, and when you're making a picture... It will prevent you from making unsightly gaps, but it will also allow you to make sightly gaps. If you want them. It does not guarantee no gaps. Yes. It just guarantees no unsightly gaps. That's right. They'll be very, very nice gaps. Well, you know, you need gaps sometimes. Very important. Uh, well, when you're making picture frames or segmented turnings, accuracy and precision matter, uh, Rockler's new perfect miter setup blocks make it a snap to dial in the exact miter gauge settings for frames anywhere from four to 12 sides. Each block has three miter slots, each for a specific polygon, like a hexagon, heptagon, or octagon. Uh, just fit the setup block onto your miter bar, snug the block up to the fence, and tighten the knob um, to just lock in your setting. You've kind of seen these before. I've, I've seen them before. They're really weird-looking shaped things 
but you just pop them on that miter cage, set your fence to that setting, and now you can make your cuts with the utmost confidence that all the miters will line up perfectly. So we'll again have that link in the show notes to Rockler's perfect miter setup blocks. Those do actually make things very, very easy. Um, you can find uh, those two products at rockler.com or check them out in stores if you want. So thank you, Rockler, for sponsoring the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Rockler. Thanks, Uncle Rockler. Everybody say thank you to Rockler. Thank you, Rockler. It's like definitely like having kids. Man, I love the sound of the kids. <laughs> it's like there you go. Romper room the back there, kids man. throwing in their own thank you. <laughs> in the back oh. <laughs> All right. Yeah, the, the kids are a little more like, I don't know, insane now that we live here. Yeah, they're excited about the new house. That's not going to wow. wear off for a while, man. They're going to be running around like little monkeys. Well, there's like a lot more running pathways in the house. <laughs> they, can, they can build up some course, speed. There's like more room outside too. So, right. I, I think so now they're, they're increasing their stamina. That's we got to put them outside more. <laughs> we can spread the area out back. Yeah, but there's even more room for them to run around out there. So. Yeah, but I can see them from like far away. Which well, there, there was a, a story you posted that I was cracking up. I showed Nicole. It's like your kids are just running away and then the story just keeps going, but they just, they just keep going. Keep That's a kind of property that you kind of have to be a little bit concerned. Like, are they going to come back? <laughs> are they going to get lost from one side of the property to the other yeah. and not be able to find their way back? You got to put some kind of tracking devices on them or something, man. I got the drone. It'll be fine. Okay. We'll find them. Go find them somewhere. Send the drone out. <laughs> Uh, that's good stuff. Go find the kids. That's that's nice. All right. Well, we're going to finish up the show here today with some emails and voicemails. And we have two voicemails. Can I, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to, I don't want to drag this thing out, but you brought up setup blocks in the mid-roll ad. And I feel like from the hand tool perspective, I need to throw out a caveat here. Setup blocks are bad in the hand tool world. Yeah. Um, because what we do, what do you do with a setup block and a power tool? You use the setup block to set the tool, like the height of the saw blade yeah. or the depth of the router bit. In the hand tool world, what you do is you use a setup block to then mark the wood. And how sharp is your pencil? What kind of pencil did you use? You know, was the pencil standing straight up? Was the pencil angled in so you're getting right up to the edge? And and I've I've known I bring this up because I've known a lot of people who, in that transition from integrating more hand tools into into the shop, they put the same tools that they use in the power tool world. They impose that onto the hand tool thing and it just doesn't work. First of all, you're the one who's sawing to the line. So if you can't saw to a line, it doesn't really matter how accurately you lay it out. (laughs) But you will find like if you're laying it out with that level of accuracy and then expecting that same amount of precision as you lay it on the next piece and the tiniest adjustment in the lead of your pencil or how you actually put the pencil against that block will change where that line is on the work. Even if you like, bisect that line perfectly with your handsaw, they're going to be different. Um, and we're talking tiny, tiny measurements here, but sometimes that's, that's what it takes. It's just one of those things that I want to throw in when you go to the hand tool world, it just doesn't work. You can't, you can't apply well machinist or even power tool type, um, practices onto it. If the work you're going to do is by hand, because already you're well, for lack of a better term, you're flawed. Like if you milled that well, piece yeah, of stock you're using by hand, hand tools to do everything, so you are yeah, you are flawed. <laughs> but but basic <laughs> assumptions that you make in a power tool world, like okay, those two faces are now parallel to one another mm-hmm. because I ran it through my planer. Assuming your planer set up right, you can't make those assumptions. You can get pretty dang close by laying out your lines, but there's always going to be slight imperfections, and you just can't 
rely on external sources like setup blocks to to do things like that. It but, causes so much trouble. But is this not the same thing as a shooting board that's just locked into a particular angle? Isn't it the same thing you would do for hand tools? A setup block? Well, the whole point of the setup block is to set up the saw so that we can make the cut. And when we're done, that cuts perfect. When you cut by hand and you know, okay, it's not exactly 45, it may not be perfectly 45. Well, that's why you have a shooting board. It's, it's, it's doing the same thing. It's just doing it in a different way. Yeah, but in that instance, you're actually cutting the wood with that setup. Yeah. Using a layout tool requires you to lay it out and then still cut. The shooting board is is fixing the error after the fact. I mean, I see what you're saying. Right. Yes, I mean, the, the equivalent, if you want to do this sort of thing in the hand tool world, is being done with a shooting board, whereas in a power tool world, it's being done with a setup and layout tool. That's my right. point. But you're still cutting to a line. But you, 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 and you if still, that line is positioned incorrectly, you cut to the line, but it's not the same. Right. There's no precision from one piece to the other. Right. That's the key. That's that's the point that I'm I'm getting at because I, I can remember this distinctly. I you know I grew up in in power tools and for a couple of years there, even after I got rid of my power tools and I was working entirely by hand, I was still using like a power tool mentality for laying out things and and making assumptions that you can make when you're using power tools. And it got me in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And it, it actually I, I had a a bit of a uh, of a of a renaissance, if you will, um, <laughs> where I, I had to cast off my old ways and completely change my way of thinking because it is a very different um, mindset when you're working entirely by hand. You can't, you can't trust anything. Basically don't assume anything is flat and embrace that. You know, it doesn't need to be flat, but you find your accuracy, you find your precision through other means. Mm -hmm. Well, just remember Shannon always says you can't trust anything in hand tools. And it's also, <laughs> you're not very good. <laughs> I think that's what he said. So, uh, and, and you're all flawed. Yes, you're Good. all flawed. Um, all right. So we got a voicemail here from Caleb Nab about buying lumber. Hey guys, a uh, question about buying lumber. I'm a hobbyist woodworker and don't buy a lot of lumber at a time. Um, and a lot of the lumber companies around me are geared towards what seems to be furniture companies, large furniture companies. Uh, cabinet makers, stuff like that. Uh, companies that would buy large amounts of lumber at a time. Um, do you think companies like this would want to deal with a small hobbyist woodworker? Um, how big of a company do you think a hobbyist woodworker is able to buy lumber from without seeming to waste the company's time um, with smaller purchases? Uh, you all may have talked about this before on previously on the podcast, but where do you all buy your lumber from? Is it a big company, small company? Um, do you have it shipped in? Um, is it crazy expensive to have lumber shipped as opposed to picking it up? Um, and then how do you have it finished? Is it S2S, S4S? Um, what do you all prefer? Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. All right. So obviously Shannon works at a, a lumber yard and has probably a really good perspective for a lot of this from the lumber yard side of things. Um, I, I could just say for me personally, when I shop for lumber, it really depends. There's places I've gone to that are very uh, hobbyist friendly. And then there are places that it's very clear that if you get too picky, you're not going to make any friends. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, I just need this many Who board feet, to leave. you know, let, let me add the pile. Um, they want to practically pick this stuff out for you. Um, each, each place kind of has its own vibe and some of them are truly, um, just business to business. Uh, there was a place in Arizona that I used to go to that changed their policy while I was out there. Uh, and they would only work with businesses from that point on because of you put it because, say it right. you. because of you no, no, no. see here's the problem i was a business and i was still a pain in the ass so i could get in the door <laughs> but i would cause them problems because i wanted to pick through the piles so i think it kind of depends on which uh you know how, how their business is servicing their clients this is a question i think you can actually call and ask if you're really not sure and just say, hey, I'm mm -hmm. a hobbyist. Can I buy material from you? Will I have the ability to just kind of look at the material first? Or are you only servicing, you know, business to business? And um, if I'm buying small quantities, I'm kind of just a hassle. Um, do, Shannon, is it okay to call places and just ask that outright question? <laughs> Don't call us. <laughs> no, you can't call. Absolutely. So let, let, let me first say, Caleb, um, lumberupdate.com. If you're not subscribed to Lumber Industry Update podcast, it's spun off of this show. Oh, you should so do good. it. But most importantly, episodes 16, 17, and 18, where to buy lumber, buying lumber online and buying lumber with a plan A and a plan B. Those three episodes will basically answer all the questions you just asked. Um, and then there's several other buying episodes in there, but those in particular, I think episode 16, you will find a lot of information there. But here's the thing. The answer is it depends. Um, it could depend on what kind of day that company's having. Like if you showed up at that lumber yard that said, no, we only service commercial customers, but you showed up the day before Thanksgiving, they'll probably help you because there's nothing going on, you know, and the guys, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, you could just catch them in a good mood and they're willing to help you. The, the, no one is, I, I think if you call and you say, you know, do you only serve businesses? Most people will probably say, well, no, we'll service anybody. Because a lot of times it comes down to the quantity that you buy. Some of them will have a minimum board foot that they'll they'll service. Um, others, it's kind of iffy. And again, it can depend upon the day. It also can depend upon the product. So for instance, at the yard where I work, we have a lot of rough sawn lumber. But we also have a lot of pre-dimensioned lumber. Like all of our decking products, our Ipes and Kumaru's and things like that, they are already S4S, surface on four sides, and E4E, edged on four sides because they're decking boards. So it's, it's a product, not really rough lumber. But if you come in and say, okay, I just need, you know, 10 board feet of cherry, you might get some roll, some eye rolling going, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> that's going to be pain. But if you come in and say, I need two Ipe deck boards, yeah, no problem. Here they are because they're standard sizes. They're one by four, they're one by six, you know, and they're already dimensioned. Now, if you say I need two deck boards and I need them specifically grooved, well, that could be a bit of an issue because if the molder's not set up for grooving, which by the way, the molder is always set up for grooving. We have a whole molder just for decking grooving, but running two boards through could interrupt the workflow and cause problems. So it depends upon the product. Interestingly enough, teak um, is, we sell it in a rough sawn like you would expect to find hardwood, but we sell teak by the board, by the piece, because it's just the way the teak market runs. So it's highly variable on what you're buying, how much you're buying, where you are in the country, how that particular lumberyard operates. So what you need to do is, is if you have a lumber yard that's near you, you know, you can give them a call and say, you know, here's, here's what I do and here's what I'm thinking. How can I best do business with you? And if they just immediately shut you down, well, maybe it's not a lumber yard you want to do business with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, this is not the time. There were times when maybe that was permissible for lumber yards because they had plenty of business elsewhere. We're not there anymore. 
So if you just come to them and say, you know, I have a project I'm working on and really I need 50 board feet to do that, you know, what would be the best way to buy that from you? And they may say, you know, it's not really something we do. And some of that is just logistics. Getting 50 board feet out from, you know, 4,000 board feet stacked up on forklifts is more than just getting a guy to drive the forklift and pick it down. There's a lot of inventory concerns and there's a lot of automation in that inventory that can make pulling that 50 board feet out a problem. The other issue with picking your lumber and picking through a stack is lumber is graded on an average. So if a pack of lumber is an FAS grade, that's an average FAS grade, which means some of it's better than FAS and some of it is less than FAS. Now, there can be percentages. You can say this lumber is 90% FAS or some of it is 100% FAS, but more often than not, you'll find some gray area there. So if you go in and you pick off all the best boards, you may have lowered the overall quality of that particular pack of lumber, but it still has the same price associated with it. This is not your problem as the consumer, but it is a major problem for the lumber yard itself. And that's why they kind of don't look too kindly at guys coming through and picking out just one or two boards, make it worth their while. In other words, yeah. so each lumber yard is going to have a different definition of what's worth our while. Um, but you will also probably discover based upon the quality of lumber that that particular yard has, most of it is going to be way better than what you would need to build your typical furniture project. Like number one, common lumber is technically only 66% clear. But when you think about cutting out the knots and the smaller sizes we need for furniture, you can get perfectly clear material out of a common board. No problem at all. But a molding company or, or somebody that needs long runs of things, that's, that's a major problem. It's the, the reason that flooring company, there is a flooring grade is traditionally number three common lumber because flooring can be really narrow and be really short on only one face. So I, 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 will land, I will land this plane and just say a lot of this is discussed on the lumber update. It, it sounds like you're, you're, you're starting to venture into that. I would highly urge you check it out. But the last thing I will say is if this is a lumber yard that really you're not going to be their type of customer, that's okay. Who are their customers? You don't just have to buy lumber from a lumber yard. You can buy lumber from cabinet shop, from a furniture maker, yeah. from a general contractor. You can stick your order onto their order. So if you find out who their customers are, or if you know of a cabinet shop that's nearby you, give them a call, talk to their shop foreman and say, Hey, where do you get your lumber? Oh yeah, I know them. They don't really want to service a guy like me. How often do you buy lumber? You know, could I maybe add 50 board feet of cherry to that order and come pick it up at your facility? You know, I'll pay for it in advance if necessary. Or do you have lumber there? Do you have offcuts? Do you have things that I can purchase from you? I have told so many people to do this and never once have had anybody say that didn't work. In fact, just the opposite. I have people write me saying, I used that tip. I went and now I have this great relationship with this guy that runs a millwork house who now calls me and says, oh, hey, by the way, we just ran a huge walnut job. Do you need some walnut? And nice. you, a lot of times get it for a song. Sometimes they just give it to you because it's taken up space in their shop. Don't expect that. Never go on expecting something for free. Always be willing to pay for it. But you will be shocked at how much, I don't want to call it waste because they kind of think they'll use it eventually, but it gets put into a corner. So, I mean, I personally, uh, the company I work for has two commercial millwork houses and there's a large amount of square footage in the corner of the building that's dedicated to offcuts. And it's a major thorn in the side of the shop foreman because that offcut bin just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, just like your own shop. And these guys want to get rid of that stuff. So I urge you to go downstream, 
from the lumber supplier and look at their customers. Um, there's always going to be a reason to go back to the lumber supplier because you need certain things or certain thicknesses. But for most of us building furniture, we don't need eight foot long boards. Um, and you can get, get really good deals and build a great relationship with a cabinet shop or a millwork house or, or some other contractor that way. Hmm. All right. Well, after all that, I feel inclined to play this. Ooh, <laughs> Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode number 16, How to Buy Lumber. Uh, I like Got a these. question from Caleb today. A retroactive intro song is, is pretty good. <laughs> we need a post-roll theme song. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to skip this other email, uh, voicemail question here just because of time. Shannon took a long time to answer that one. But it was Sorry. a good answer. It was a fantastic answer. Sorry. I'm not debating that. But I am. Caleb just sounds like a guy who's kind of new in the journey of buying lumber. Yeah. And I love people like that because it's a chance to mold them before they get jaded. Yeah. Like Mark. <laughs> that's right. I'm so jaded. It's ridiculous. You're still, you get so jaded, you start cutting your own. Yep. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Matt, yeah. Has, Matt just goes to his backyard. So he's disqualified. Yeah, all, the, all the time in the world. Pick the stacks as much as you want. Yep. You know, want to degrade <laughs> my pile? No problem. Only have yourself to get mad at. <laughs> when you're out there complaining. You heard it here, folks. When you go to Matt's house to buy lumber, take all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. Sure. Pick hey, hey. the stacks. Unstack everything. <laughs> and, he doesn't even require you to restack it. And, uh, and just don't mind the kid noise in the background. Don't mind that too, yeah. Well, maybe someday they'll come on and help you drive the forklift. Yeah. Who knows? Okay. You gotta convince one of my kids to drive the forklift. Hopefully they'll be nicer than the people that usually drive forklifts at these places. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Jeff had a question here. We're going to do a couple of emails. He says, when should I consider putting wax over top of a finish? And how do you recommend applying the wax? Uh, what finishes should or should not get wax over them? And is paste wax the way to go or something else? All right. So, you know, I actually over the years haven't been a huge fan of wax because wax in and of itself doesn't really provide a whole lot in the way of protection. Uh, but what people typically do with wax is they get the look that they want uh, by applying wax and sometimes by using something that just kind of abrades the surface, a buffer or whatever, you can actually uh, really make the surface silky smooth. So people will often add a wax as a kind of last step finishing component that uh, just makes the surface look gorgeous and have that silky smooth feel. Um, but it's not really offering a whole lot of protection. Now, I, lately I've been using a lot of hard wax oils. The wax is just kind of built into the finish. It doesn't feel waxy when you're done. Uh, but it is a component of the finish and you could, if you wanted to add additional wax, it's not going to do much for you. But if you don't have the look that you want when you're done, sometimes that last little coat of wax can be pretty helpful. And a lot of times a uh, electric buffer of some sort is a good thing to apply the wax with or to buff it out with. Um, yes, simple furniture paste wax is, is a good way to go for this. And you really, I mean, can you guys think of a finish that you can't put wax over. I mean, I'm not saying you should put it over every finish, but I don't think it's actually going to hurt anything to put it on just about any finish that exists in woodworking. It might be, you know, useless and not doing much, <laughs> right? But it's not going to necessarily necessarily hurt. Um, the one place I would say be careful is finishes that you need to maybe look after again in the future. Let's say you have a polyurethane and maybe at some point in the future, you want to scuff sand that poly layer and then apply yeah. a fresh coat of finish, you probably don't want wax on there because a lot of finishes don't like going on top of wax. So they'll be cleaning it pretty 
pretty well before you plan on a cut of fish. Yeah, for sure. So get all that wax off of there. Yeah. Think about the future. Sometimes that wax uh, layer kind of becomes a maintenance issue as the wax gets dull and it starts to not look so good. Then you're going to have to apply more wax. And that also hurts the ability to apply whatever film finish you had on there previously. So keep the future in mind. Uh, but other than that, I don't really think there's any finish that you can't apply wax on if that is what you choose to do or want to do. That was good. Thanks, Matt. All right. I'm, I'm going to answer next one. No. Uh, sure. This next one is uh, for me, Matt, from Matt. Okay. Different Matt cool. asking question. Uh, I have been into woodworking for about a year now, and I'm very envious of everyone who does this hobby while owning their own shop space. Because of where I'm, I am in my life, I currently am renting a house with a garage in my previous garage shop, which was, which I was in for a few months. I rented from a friend. Both were situations where I did not have the freedom to improve or embellish the space in order to fit my needs. I wonder how you guys tackle the following problems. Lack of outlets, I ended up running an extension cord from the house in my first tiny shop. Low power, everything is a 15 amp outlet. And overall limitations into how to utilize the space, such as mounting things to the walls or building semi-permanent fixtures. I also have come across the limitation where I cannot upgrade my tools because if I buy a better jointer or table saw, for example, I might need an outlet rated for 20 amps or even 30 amps if the tool requires it. Overall, it has become a frustration because I feel limited in what I can accomplish, not in production of woodworking things, but rather in efficiency by utilizing better tools or more powerful tools. I'm wondering if you guys had any advice. I love the show. I continue to learn so much, even if Mark is the worst. What? Hey, what? What? <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> I, I take only slight umbrage with that. Oh, man. <laughs> only slight. So I... Uh, I, I pull out this question because my first two shops were in uh, rental spaces. So I think a few shows ago, we had talked about how I, I moved my, my workshop from like the garage into the basement of those house I was renting, but the table saw was still out in the, uh, the garage. And in the wintertime, I couldn't really use it because the table saw would draw too much amperage that would blow the circuit out there because it was too cold. So I had to go out there with like a hairdryer or a heater or something to like start the saw up and I can make my cut and then run back inside because it was also freezing. It was not really great for, uh, you know, working in. Uh, and then my second shop, I was so fortunate that garage had two 15 amp circuits. So now I could Ish. actually have a dust collector and had that running when another tool was running. Mm. So that was like a huge upgrade in air quotes, but I did not have 220 in the shop either. As far as mounted things to the walls or like improving the space and even for the electrical, talk to your landlord. Like, there's a very good chance that they will probably be okay with you making some modifications if they're reversible or in the case of electricity, if you pay for it, what do they care? If you hire the electrician to go out there and run that line for you, well, then cool. You know, it does sound like a huge deal for them. If they're not up for that, there's the extension cord thing. So you can do that, which I've done too. You can run a cord from the house into the garage. And also, the, I guess it depends on how far the garage is, if it's an attached garage or detached or whatever it might be. Another extension cord option would be to put a 220 out right off of the uh, actual main panel and run an extension cord from the panel out to your shop so you can power your new jointer uh, at 220. Uh, if cost is not an option or not a, a hindrance, you can always buy a generator. That's like the magic option. 
if you can't get power to where you're going, well, you just make your own power. So if you really need that extra That's power what I'm and, about. and you make your own power. can't make your own, just do it yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a DIY solution. Stop buying your power from the grid to <laughs> make your own for more money. <laughs> All right. Uh, so if you can't get that extra power out to the garage, you can make your own with uh, running a generator. It's a little, a little more you know inconvenient, but it can still get the job done. If you only need to run a tool for a little bit, you can set the generator and get your stuff done and do it that way. But I think oh, more corely, this is a conversation to have with your landlord to figure out what things you can do. And if your landlord is like anything like the ones I've had, they're super nice and super like, actually like, want you to enjoy the property, they'll be very open to the things that you want to do. But also keep in mind, you got to be like thinking about their thoughts as well. Like if you're going to leave. Can I re-rent this place out without having to make a, do a bunch of work to like patch holes in the, in the walls in the, in the garage because you put a bunch of holes in there. Yeah. Something like that. So anyway, talk to your landlord or buy a generator or do extension cords. I've been there. It sucks, but you know, hopefully there's a better solution out there than what I did, which is, you know, I bought a house. (laughs) (laughs) There's no problem that money can't solve. Just spend more money and buy (laughs) buy your own house. That's, that's what I did. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Nice. Well, this is from Eric. I'll make this one quick because I, I did a lumber update episode in the middle of this. You sure did. um, uh, Eric said, I just bought some ceramic water stones from Lee Valley grits from a thousand to 13,000. Does it hurt the stones to keep them always soaking in a Tupperware container? So they're ready to use. Does it damage the stones? If I put some bleach in the water to keep the water from getting gross. Since I live in Southern California, freezing is not an issue. Eric, I'm going to make your life real easy. You bought ceramic stones. Boom. You don't need to soak them. Yeah. Um, you use water as a lubricant, but one of the beauties of the ceramic stone is they don't have to be soaked to get ready for use. Um, so no need to keep them in a Tupperware container at all. Just keep a bottle of water or, um, I actually use Windex because I'm told that it helps to keep the stone a little bit cleaner. Um, but yeah, that, that was the whole reason that I switched to Shapton stones back when I did from a traditional like Norton water stone, cause I don't have to be soaked because I do have freezing temperatures and at the time my shop was uninsulated. So yeah, no need to, to soak them at all. Just use water at the time of sharpening. It's a bit of a game changer for water stones. Like if you think of the disgusting, you know, Rubbermaid tub of water stones that uh, shops often have to keep around, like these Shaptons are great. You pull them down, you get your spray bottle, you spritz them and you go. Right. That's all you need. Same thing with diamond stones, because I'm now not on Shapton stones anymore. For those who are keen listeners and go, but he's not using Shapton stones anymore. No, I'm using diamond stones, but it's the same story. Mm -hmm. No need to soak them. There you go. All right. Well, that uh, just about does it for us. Remember that we are proudly sponsored by Rockler. Rockler is a family owned business since 1954. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just swallowed my tongue. Um, they're your go-to source for high quality. <laughs> I love it. In innovative woodworking tools, finishing supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice. Whether you're building a simple bookshelf, a custom desk, or a new kitchen cabinets, Rockler has everything you need to make your next project a success. Visit rockler.com and use the code WOODTALK. That's all one word to receive free shipping on most orders over $39. Yay, Rockler. Go Rockler. So if you have questions for the show, please send them to us. We'd love to hear from you. Go to woodtalkshow.com. You can fill out the form there, or you could even email us at woodtalkshow at gmail.com. We'll take your voicemails, your written in questions, all that fun stuff. You can also ask us questions on Instagram, I suppose. Sometimes we see those. 
we're there at, <laughs> at uh, Wood Talk Show on Instagram as well, um, or at Matt Cremona, at Wood Whisperer, and at Renaissance Woodworker. And because I get to do this segment, I'm going to throw in the plug one more time and say lumberupdate.com or Lumber Update in any place where you get your podcasts and you can submit your lumber questions there because I'm just going to stop answering them on this show. I have been enjoying your other podcast. I've been uh, mudding the shop and catching up on uh, yours, your uh, Lumber Update show. It is designed to be listened to while doing sheetrock work. It's it's quite it's it's quite good. I'm like this is actually like not that I would say you would be surprised. Good, but like this is this is actually pretty pretty darn good. I got to listen to your your rant finally about being like better people to other people. And I wanted to yeah. give give you like a good pat on the back virtually. That that really made my day. I'm like this is that <laughs> was that was a fantastic episode. It was like, a lumber your, show. Your there episodes was are like educational and they have a lot of good content, but that's still my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people agree with you on that. Apparently, I just have to rant more often. Spend less time talking about lumber and more time just about being human to one another. You need to go through more McDonald's drive throughs to get your iced tea. Ugh, they anger me. <laughs> they anger me. Ever since McDonald's did the separate line, like the two the two call box things, people just can't, it's like they can't deal with that. Like, what can't do I do? This out. It's very confusing. I wish you would start talking about video games or home tech or something so I could start listening. <laughs> I don't usually listen to woodworking for pleasure, like on, on podcasts, as much as there's like good stuff out there. I tend to default to my other hobbies. Can yeah. you do can you start a Star Trek podcast? Because I, I would like to listen to oh, that. Man, could you imagine the trolls on that? I don't <laughs> want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> would be my bad. house burnt down. Well, if you want, Mark, I've appeared on several triathlon podcasts. You're welcome to uh that to I might to listen to. I might have a listen. Okay, well, good stuff. All right, well, thank you for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.